Yo, are you ready to teach some fools how to make a dev education business? I'm ready. I've never been more ready. All right, let's do this. All right, so our goal for this podcast is to maximize the chances that the listener can create a developer education business that makes a million dollars a year within three years. And the reason this is happening is I, I tweeted about this. And I said, if you're a good programmer and a great teacher, you can probably build a million dollar a year dev education business in three to five years. I'm trying to deliver on that, that clickbaity promise. And so I brought you on because I figure you're the best person to, to help with this. We can at least try, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about this. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart and something I have done. So <laughs> I do feel <laughs> yeah. qualified to educate and see what we can do here. So where do you want to start? People probably know you, but just in case, like you are doing many millions a year in dev education and dev products and things like that already. Uh, not education anymore specifically, but that's where I started. The first things I did were educational stuff. So I did a book that was kind of like a book kind of package with some screencasts and stuff. Then I did a video course. Then I did another video course. And then I did what was mostly a book, but also had a bunch of bonus content and for the most part, those all like made more than the ones before them and sold more. I think the second thing I did was more popular than the third one, but generally the trajectory was up. And the most recent one, which was like the very last one was Refactoring UI, which was the sort of design for developers book. And that one was a home run compared to any of the other ones. The other ones were all great, you know, had done over a million in revenue between all of them before doing the Refactoring UI. But Refactoring UI just crossed $3 million in total revenue on just its own just like a couple months ago. And that still does really well, like 50 grand a month on autopilot with no effort. You know, sometimes I wonder why I even run this Tailwind CSS business. Like me and Steve could just sit pretty and take home, you know, 300 grand a year each or 400 grand a year each, just literally doing nothing, living off of book sales. So, um, Amazing. yeah. I feel like I've learned a thing or two about this stuff for sure. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, all that to say is I think we have the right, I have the right collaborator here for this. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's jump into it. So let's talk about finding ideas. Yeah, so this is a tricky one to really give any concrete advice on. I guess the reason I added this to our list, to our um, Google Doc, is I feel like I see people who just don't have great ideas, but they just push on them anyways and hope that they can make them work with more marketing or or more whatever. And I think it's really important that you try to find an idea where it's just like there's a lot of obvious energy for it in the market where you don't feel like you have to convince people to be interested in the idea. So I have a few ideas here of things I can sort of share that I think are helpful or at least work for me. So one of the most important ones for me uh, for finding good ideas was working in public. So a lot of my best ideas for things came from like doing a live streams or sharing things I'm learning on Twitter and just really trying to pay attention to what I'm like becoming known for and what people think I'm really good at and what they seem excited about. So I did a course on like, well, actually the very first thing I did was like teaching PHP developers like functional programming principles like map, reduce, filter, stuff like that. Because when I first discovered this way of like thinking about array manipulation and stuff, I was really excited about it because I had just spent so many years of my life writing like 
var result equals empty array for loop put stuff into the new array, return the new array, you know, all the time. And being able to identify these patterns and do this stuff in a more elegant way was really exciting to me. So the way the whole thing started was I saw a Reddit post where someone said that they had a job interview and there was this job interview question and this was the answer that they gave and they weren't sure if it was a good answer. And it was this type of problem. So I replied, I put together a little screencast as a reply to the Reddit thread saying, this is how I would have done it. It had like some interesting array transformation stuff and less of like an imperative solution. And there was a lot of people who were like really excited about this screencast. I even like Avdi Grimm like tweeted it out at some point and it was a PHP screencast and me and him had had no, you know, communication ever. And he had no idea who I was, but a lot of people were sort of picking it up and I started becoming known as like the collection transformation guy, which was really cool. The reason I I even did that book is because I was trying to think about topics that I felt like I had seen people be excited about my level of knowledge for, and that's why I picked that. So I was excited about it, of course, which I think is really important. I think people can tell when you're enthusiastic about something versus when you're not enthusiastic about something. I think that's actually like extremely important, but you can't be trying to force people to be interested in something that they're not interested either. You have to kind of go where the gravity is sort of pulling you. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the Venn diagram where it's like things you are legitimately, authentically excited about Mm -hmm. and are willing to learn a ton about and things that excite other people and they want to learn about it too. Yeah, exactly. For for me, this this was Vim. Yeah. So I was like super into learning Vim. I was like reading the docs. I was like going to super ham on it. And I noticed that like my coworkers were starting to ask me questions about it. Yeah. And like when I would pair with people, I'd be like, did you know you could do this? And they'd be like, oh, that's awesome. And I was like, okay, I'm becoming the Vim guy. Mm-hmm. And then like I got a talk accepted at RailsConf. And then like the talk went really well and people were super into it. It's like, okay, people want to learn about this topic. Yeah. Like there's, there's interest here. Yep. I think like the next topic or one of the other ideas I had here kind of ties into that too, which is for me at least, the ideas that seem to like get the most traction that people get the most excited about are things that like make people feel like wizards that they can do things that they couldn't do before so the vim example that you just mentioned is what made me think of that when someone sees you basically go from like line three column 17 directly to like line 61 column 42 with three characters selected and like two keystrokes it's like what the fuck how did you do that you know what i mean it feels Mm -hmm. like it feels like magic it feels like a superpower i saw this described in the book badass by kathy sierra killer book She talks about how important it is in product design to think about not like what your product can do, but what your product's going to help other people do and how to just like give people superpowers. And this is why, you know, products like Rails are successful in the first place is because if you looked at what like the ecosystem was like before something like Rails came out and then Rails comes out with all this convention over configuration, this like super terse syntax using this like fun, beautiful Ruby language look how few lines of code I have to write to like get something from a database and put it on the screen. It just makes people feel like so like amazing. Like look what I can do thanks to this tool. So I think like the Vim example is a good one. Like look how fast and easily I can manipulate this text, which I couldn't do before or the collections book that I did. Look how I can take this like ugly imperative code and look how like elegant I can express this compared to before. The other course I did was on like um, test-driven development, which is another thing that feels like magic once you get good at it, where you can just like hit a keystroke and just like prove that your app works. Like what an amazing feeling that is for someone to have that didn't have that before, like the confidence that you get from that. 
refactoring UI was like designed for developers, like teaching developers how to make their stuff look good, all presented in this very tactical way where it's like, do this specific thing differently than you were doing before and magically your UI looks better than it did before. Like it's all tapping into this, like giving people superpowers sort of thing. And certainly like that's not gonna be true for everything. Like I'm, I'm sure there's people out there who are creating stuff successfully that doesn't necessarily fit into this bucket. That's the bucket that I think I know the most about, so I can definitely recommend it. But I don't know, maybe it's more true than I think even across across all areas. Like even if you look at a book like Atomic Habits by James Clear, that's about just like giving you tools that make it easy to do things that have always been so hard. You know, like I've never been able to get in the habit of like flossing my teeth. Oh, put like plastic flossers in a bowl on your bathroom counter. Magically you floss your teeth every day. Holy crap, you know? It's just these like very specific things that let people feel like they're like leveling up in their own own lives. So I do think it's important to to think about things from from that perspective. And and I don't know how to use that to necessarily filter out a bad idea specifically, but I I do just feel like I see people all the time where they get excited about something and it turns out that they're just kind of the only person who's excited about that, you know? Mm. There's a bunch of nice things about working in public and like sharing consistently, but that's the one of them is feedback where like you should be getting this message back from the world that this thing that you're doing and like the intermediate pieces you're producing are interesting to people and people are excited about it. And the working in public thing, like there's so many benefits from it. Like it's, this is sort of useful regardless. Like even if the product idea you chose initially uh, is not great or like the topic you're in is not great, like building this audience over time is kind of awesome. I don't know that there's like a great path towards successful business, like a successful business like this that does not involve kind of a lot of producing stuff like consistently. Yeah, I do think like building an education business requires building an audience. I Because there's a, an element of sort of trust involved that's maybe a little bit different than trying to just build like a traditional tool sort of focused business where someone, where SEO is maybe like all you, not all you need to do, but the important thing, someone needs to be able to find you when they're looking for you. There's obviously an element with that with education too. If you're trying to learn how to do something in Excel, the first result on Google that solves your exact problem, you know, is they did it, they won. But for me, at least it's been critical to be able to sort of build that audience, build that trust, build like a group of people who just, you know, uh, value what you're saying, basically. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. I think credibility, credibility seems much more like the, the creator credibility seems really way more important in, in education. Yeah. So I think I like or in this area is like an idea I like to hear is, is targeting intermediate people. So like, I think typically beginner, like the beginner education stuff is like very well served and very competitive. Like learning the basics of Ruby or like learning the basics of PHP is probably just insanely like crowded field and already well served. But like learning this particular niche topic, that's a little bit like you already know the basics and you want to learn how to use these like functional programming methods that's like just so much there's so much more open space there i agree and i think those people are hungry for content too and it ties into another point that i had here which is i found like the things that have worked best for me are teaching things that like i just learned and i'm still excited about and i'm still trying to get better at i have no idea how to teach someone php from scratch 
I have zero clue. I have no idea where to start at all. But when I was doing like the TDD course, that's like what I had been into for the last year and I was still excited about it and I was still trying to get better at it. And because of that, like my enthusiasm shined through more. The content was better because I actually remembered what it was like to not know this and I could communicate that sort of state that someone was in before learning this thing. Like I could write copy that would basically get the point across. Like I know what it feels like to be in this situation where you're don't know how to test this thing or you try to do this and this, this other thing happens and people just like really feel like you understand the, the position that they're in. I think people um, tend to uh, overestimate how much knowledge they need or like how, how advanced they need to be in a thing before they can start teaching someone who's just learning it. Like they sort of assume like I need to I need to have this completely mastered to be a good teacher of this topic, and like really the best teacher is probably like just a bit ahead of yeah. where like a new yeah. person is coming in. I think this. it's very dangerous to wait until you're you're you've mastered it because your enthusiasm will disappear and you'll forget what it's like to not know it. I was looking for this tweet for, by Patio Eleven that mentioned this. I couldn't find it, but he made like the same point. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, man, I've been saying this forever. So it's good to see someone else say it. But I do think like there needs to be like more content in the world from people who are just teaching what they learned yesterday. You know what I mean? Where they can really make that direct connection between didn't know it and know it for right. What well, made people it click for you for that exact thing? Yeah. Like when did it snap into place? You're like, oh, OK, this makes sense now. I imagine also like especially if you're thinking about. Like imagine you're trying to like start this business in the future. I think taking really good notes could be a really useful thing. Like what your journey is like through learning a topic. Like when something like suddenly clicks for you or like it falls into place, like maybe like save that, like document that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't say that I've done that, but that does sound smart. I mean, I can, I can say that, you know, that speaks to what we're just talking about, where if you forget what it was like to not know something, you're going to have a harder time connecting with the people who are trying to cross that chasm you know but if you can go back and read something you've written down from when you were earlier and kind of just jog your memory and remember oh man i remember now i remember what it was like not knowing this you know i think that can be can be really helpful for sure Mm -hmm. yeah i think the ideas also that we've talked about so far are fairly they're fairly niche by going to an intermediate thing it's not a topic that appeals to everyone. Like I, I think is is kind of I, I think that's a nice feature. I think people will probably tend to err on the side of thinking like, well, I, I want to pick a topic that like everyone wants or like that like tons and tons of people are potentially interested in. And I think especially when you start out, it's probably hard to go too niche as long as there's you're getting that interest back from people. Yes. Go like niche down until you stop getting the that energy back that feedback back i think i agree with that i was like becoming the vim guy i was giving vim talks that people were liking my coworkers were coming to me for this i was super obsessed with the topic but i was like i still remembered being a, a newbie at it and like the first product i ever made that I, that I on the internet was vim for rails developers so it wasn't just vim because it's too broad even though it's like a particular text editor it's still just too big but vim for rails developers was like okay i know rails developers I know the specific things that make it easier to like write code in Rails in Vim. This is what I do all day long. Uh, and it was like this, like, you know, a very nerdy niche thing. But there were enough people that were in this position that like 
I still made thousands of dollars selling a screencast for this. Here's how to write your migrations 10 times faster. You can give like specific situations and teach people how to do things. I was talking to my friend Sam Selikoff about this the other day too, because he's working on a new like subscription training site and they're trying to sort of pivot away from their previous one, which was focused on just Ember JS and Ember just isn't really in vogue anymore. And obviously stuff like React is a lot more popular now. And I told him like, you should, you should try to sort of bridge the gap by doing like a React for Ember developers course, because you have that audience already. There's still lots of people out there who know that you got to believe there's a million people who work at LinkedIn, which is like build with Ember who don't want to work at LinkedIn anymore, who feel like they haven't had a chance to learn the stuff that it feels like everyone else is using. And now there's this course that's not just like learn react. It's like, I understand exactly like where you are and I know how you expect things to work. Here's like the equivalent of all the things that you already know in this other new tool. And I think there's a lot of, you know, advantages to to picking a specific audience like that, where you know exactly what you're trying to say to them. It kind of reminds me of advice I got a long time ago, just about writing in general, where if you're writing like a blog post or literally anything, it's really important to like write it for one person, like picture someone, you know, in your life that kind of is the part of the target audience for the thing that you're writing and write what you're writing to them as, as if they were the only person that was going to read it. And it's so much more clear what you need to say, what you need to focus on, what you can skip over than if you're just trying to like focus on, okay, this is for JavaScript developers. You know, it's better for it to be like for Jeff, my friend, who's the JavaScript developer, you know, you're going to beat anyone making a React course if you do the React for Ember course, if that person is an Ember developer, you know what I mean? And if there's enough of them, then, you know, it's it's a less risky move, you know? Yep. Rob Fitzpatrick has a great book called Write Useful Books. I bought this and haven't read it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. It's amazing. Like you're going to, you'll be inspired, I think. Wonderful resource. And one of the things he encourages is the title of your book should rule a lot of people out he comes from like a book world so he's like the key to preventing bad amazon reviews is by making it so obvious in the title who the book is not for so they just don't ever buy it they don't buy it so you don't let those people down basically yeah and conversely the people who it's for are super stoked like they're like oh my god this is exactly what i want as long as there's enough of those people you know why would you do it any other way you know yeah so let's talk about that actually like making sure there's enough of those people so we're talking about like validation here and this is the thing I've seen you do. I feel like people should just like go back in time and like look at your tweets, like when you were like like working on refactoring UI for that period, and just like see how much content you were putting out that was like samples and ideas like from that book. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of people get this advice that if you have an idea for something, you should put up a landing page and start collecting emails and see how many people put in their email address. And if a lot of people put in their email address, then you know it's like an idea worth pursuing. I think. That's sort of the last step in validation. I think you need to validate a lot more a lot earlier by just testing out ideas. And the way that I've done it is things like tweets. Like, here's a little thing that I did in an app that I was working on today that I thought was kind of neat. How many likes and retweets and replies does that get uh, versus something else that's on like a slightly different topic? 
or write blog posts about things and see how much traction those get or do a conference talk. Even if you can get a conference talk accepted on a topic, that's like a good bit of feedback and then see what people at the conference you know, have to say about it. Hopefully they record it and you can put it on YouTube and you can see how many people are watching it or how many people are commenting on it or create screencasts, basically like create, create any form of content in this sort of like one-off low and low-ish investment way that you can get feedback on and find out if these ideas actually resonate with people. You know, I've done that for literally everything. For, for refactoring UI, we were like extremely systematic about this compared to other things where Steve and I would work on these little Twitter tips that was like a before and after formula. Here's like what developers usually do when they're trying to design a piece of UI like this. These are like the exact tweaks that we would make to make it look better. And we were trying to do these like every couple of weeks and they would take hours and hours and hours and hours and hours to put together and make really perfect. And a lot of these were from like the 140 character Twitter era too, where it was like Twitter on hard mode <laughs> versus the 280 that we have now. We would just put those out and we did that for two years before releasing the book, uh, putting those out as frequently as we could to the point where some of them were getting like 15,000 likes and like 3,000 retweets and stuff like really lots and yeah. lots of traction i want to like like just stress to people like to not miss the fact that you spent hours on a single tweet repeatedly. yeah sometimes weeks you know like hours spread over weeks that sounds absurd like that sounds ridiculous but a it just like makes you stand out to an ex to an abs a ridiculous degree right compared yeah. to like what everyone else is putting out there but also that's not just wasted effort that's not no. like oh you did some marketing and now it's gone like that those tweets i guarantee are still bouncing around like twitter 100%. i'm sure loves to 100%. share people like share those tweets with people and drop them in their feeds and they're still getting retweeted the reason they take so long is because you're trying to create this like level of value density that is outrageous you know compared to just this big blog post where you're trying to sort of meander your way through and explain something it's like how can i deliver as much value as a blog post in 140 characters with an image it is a lot of work to distill that down to its like purest, most cruft free form. But the the payoff is there for sure. Like that's that's why the book did as well as it did is because we built that authority. Like when we started doing that, I think Steve had like 800 Twitter followers or something. And he was just tweeting like so pissed the Starbucks fucked up my order today, you know, like those types of <laughs> that type of Twitter usage. And within two years, like I think we grew his account to like close to a hundred thousand followers or something by the time we we released the book. I might be remembering that wrong, but it was tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. And that was just by having like a super low signal to noise ratio and just tweeting extremely high value things. Yeah, um, super high signal to noise yeah yeah well yeah okay <laughs> but yes um, yeah totally i love what you said about just like density like the value density it's like it's not about a ton of mediocre blog posts or lots of okay tweets or you know dinky screencasts with not that much to them like like value per word or second or pixel quantity I over quality is totally or is the wrong way to go like it has to be quality first I think you could do much better just writing three incredible blog posts on a topic over the course of a year and then trying to release a book on it than the reverse. I mean, with my view course that I did, which was the third thing I did, I think 
I think I probably did like three blog posts kind of leading up to it, but there was only really one that was like, this is the post that's setting up the whole value proposition for the course. It was this post called, uh, let's see if I can find it. This is tricky though, I, I think. Renderless components in Vue.js. You know, I re- that blog post was like a blog post I worked really hard on that took multiple weeks to write. And that got a lot of traction. And that sort of really springboarded my like credibility on that topic. And then I released the course about it. I think this is a little tricky because you had the taste or the a, a good enough model of who your content was for or something to in to like productively invest weeks in these tweets or blog posts. Yes. Like so, I think I think it's possible as a newbie to like invest weeks and then like no one cares. True. At the same time, that wasn't the first thing that I did. Like I did still start with tweets and things that were much lower investment, you know, to test that stuff. The blog post was like step six in sort of the validation. And I don't think I put up a landing page until after that blog post. Right. The thing you wrote here is landing page is the last step, not the first step. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like, think about these other forms of getting the information out there and testing for excitement, basically. And then when you found that, that spot, my test for this is, are people like when you describe this product that you're like considering building, do people reply with the fry, shut up and take my money? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. I have never released a product without getting that gif ever. Don't make a product that no one replies with that gif. No. When you talk about it, that, you, you that is that like table stakes. That is the absolute minimum for Absolutely. even considering releasing a product for sure. Yes. Somebody needs to want you to shut up and take yeah. their money. Uh-huh. Like otherwise don't, don't even, don't invest the time. Like just don't make that product mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk about email lists. Okay. Are they good? Yes. They're critical. Okay. I would say, um, I, I yeah. don't know if I would say critical, but I have never done a product without one. So I can't speak yes. to what happens if you don't do it. I can only speak yeah. to what happens if you do. <laughs> In my experience, <laughs> yes, that is good things. Such good things. And I think all of the, lo- like West Boss, like I think the extremely successful creators that we know, like invest incredibly in having huge, great email lists where launching is basically just emailing the list of people and being like, you can buy the thing now. And then hundreds of thousands of dollars pour out. Yeah. So I think there's a couple different ways people do email lists historically mine have always just been like a per product email list it's it's worked for me but i've always kind of felt like i wish i just had a good adam wathen list where i felt like i could send content to everyone on the list to the point where i could even like send out useful stuff that wasn't just related to the product stuff now i don't want to like pretend that like i can give advice on that and say that that would actually work better because i haven't done it but it has been like a thing that i I constantly wish that I had had, but I will I will just speak to what I have done because it has worked. It's been totally fine historically for me to create a list focused on a product where the only emails that I send people are news about progress on the product that they signed up to hear about. You know, that that has worked really well. The way that I have done it historically has always been create a landing page for the product with an ability for someone to sign up if they're interested. And it basically 
you know, that's kind of it. I've always also done like a little newsletter signup thing at the bottom of related blog posts and stuff like that. Those have never attracted as many subscribers as the landing page that was dedicated to getting the subscribers. I always kind of hoped it would not necessarily be the reverse, but that would actually contribute at least in some meaningful way where, oh, someone finds this blog post interesting. They see a little thing at the bottom to sign up. I would say it's probably 5% or less of subscribers for me have come from those like little call to actions on the related content. For whatever reason, it's always directly from the landing page. Even if I'm like linking to the landing page from the blog post or something, you know, that has performed better than putting it in the in the blog post because the landing page is more designed to convince people that it's a good idea to sign up than just like a little box at the bottom of the blog post is. So I've usually like put up a landing page like that maybe two to three months before expecting to actually finish and and release the product. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you said for refactoring UI, you were tweeting for like years. We tweeted basically. for like two years to build up the Twitter audience and just build up the sort sort of authority on the topic. Yep. And I could look at Twitter and probably find out when we put up the landing page. But I'm guessing we put up the landing page like maybe three months before the book came out. The book came out in like December of 2018. So, you know, sometime mm-hmm. at the end of the summer, beginning of fall, probably. You had like maybe like what, like 30, 40, 50,000 people on the list when you launched? Well, here, why don't we start with like the first products? Because right. I think it'll be more... That's more relatable? More relatable. Well, yeah. So even like the very first book that I released, Refactoring to Collections, which I wrote a whole blog post about this. It did like 60 grand in the first three days or something, which is still like one of my favorite memories of my whole life. It was just like my first time selling something on the internet and it went really well and I quit my job and to do another course and sort of kickstarted my entire career that I've built since then. That list, like the list I emailed on launch day was 1,500 people, 1,506 people. Like that's not a lot, you know? It kind of felt like a a good amount at the time, I think, but it didn't feel like you're gonna make life-changing money. And I made life-changing money in the sense that it changed the trajectory of my life. I still had to work really hard, you know, to like actually, to sort of take that snowball and sort of build into something bigger. But it's not like I had a list of like 25,000 people that I was launching that to or anything. It was 1,500 really engaged people. 80% of them opened the email. 53% of them clicked on a link in the email. You know, so these are just 1,500 people who are pumped about the book coming out. That's a that's a great success for your first product. Like yeah. that's that's huge. Yeah. Like most people will probably not hit those numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To start. For sure. I guess all I'm saying is just in terms of like what you're what you're asking, like how how many people do you need on, on this list? So that was fifteen hundred people, and I would say that that was enough for that to work. When I did right. the test, and you built that list. You built that list by what tweeting? I built that videos? list, but yes, okay. So good, good point. I built that list by by tweeting at the landing page initially, and that's when I got like probably forty percent of people who signed up signed up like from that initial announcement just kind of because you had been talking about this already in other places i'd already been talking about it i had been creating blog posts and stuff around it so people sort of not necessarily about the fact i was writing a book but about the topic so people trusted me and they were interested in hearing me have more to say about this stuff 
But what I did too that I think was really critical because what happens a lot of times you put out this initial tweet, you get like a bunch of subscribers and then no one ever visits the page again. You may get a couple subscribers, you know, day by day. So what I would do is I would always tweet because that's where like my main audience was when I was going to send something out to the list that was going to be valuable to motivate new people to sign up. So it's almost like relaunching the landing page. So anytime I was gonna send out a free sample chapter or something, I'd tweet out and be like, in the morning, I might say, gonna tweet out a sample chapter this afternoon. If you wanna get it, like here's the link to sign up for the newsletter. And that would get me another good chunk, you know? So it'd be like kind of volleying it back up on these days. Mm-hmm. But that's a great reason to like keep the list, to make stuff is to keep the list warm keep people stoked and give you an excuse to talk about the product and the landing page yeah again it's a all very interconnected and self-supporting sort of system i probably sent out like six or seven sort of update emails and each one would either have like a screencast in it a free chapter from the book i probably gave away like 30 to 40 percent of the content of the book for free to the newsletter just trying to make sure that the emails were valuable and that and that's totally fine by the way nobody cares no one's mad about that nope no one cares give away a lot it's fine because they were planning to buy it anyways you know what i mean so it's just like they're getting it early you know yeah and people will buy books that are just like a collection of blog posts from somebody 100 percent that are all all of derek sivers books are on his website every single word you know and i I bought 10 copies of each one, hardcovers. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Give away a lot. It's fine. Yeah. No big deal on on giving stuff away. But but that is kind of how I would continue to build the list was incentivizing people to sign up for it more than just the very first day. I tried to avoid just doing like, just a reminder, I announced that I'm doing a book. Go sign up here. Like that's a little lame. I think it's better to give someone like a good reason to actually sign up. So content is is the way that that worked for me. What were we talking about right before then? I was going to talk about like the how many people the other people to be on a list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the test driven Laravel course that had sixty four hundred people on launch day, and that had a sixty four percent open rate. Yeah, do you um, remember what the launch numbers were for that roughly? I don't remember off the top of my head. I do remember it did like, I think it did like a hundred grand Canadian on the first day, something like that. So it would have been like eighty five thousand US or something. I do remember like the 100K Canadian being like this like big milestone. So it, it did better than the other than the other book did. That one I did a little differently, which we can maybe talk about later, which was that I'd sold it in like early access. So I was adding new content to it for a long time right. before it was right. really done. And now I remember you feeling real haggard. When yeah, you, when that you was uh, that. I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, <laughs> you have a lot of PTSD from that. <laughs> yeah, I do. But at the same time, I think it was a lot more successful as a result. So it depends on the, on your uh, emotional stability, I think, whether that's a good strategy or not. Uh, so yeah, so that one went out to like 6,400 people. And I built that list sort of the same way, doing like content. I think that list probably included the refactoring to collections people too. Or I at least told all those people that I was working on it and had them sign up for it if they were interested. Um, the view course went out to 4,200 people. So less than the, the test driven Laravel one. But you can see like these are all still like not crazy lists. Like these are all under 10K, you know, which is 
nothing to write home about really then refactoring ui went out to thirty four thousand people so that's like a much bigger launch list and that's just because it was just like a more compelling topic that appealed to more people and yeah we had built that audience for two years uh we had people you know sign up we built that newsletter a bit before announcing the book by uh creating a newsletter around this like concept of these case studies that we wanted to do, which we didn't actually deliver on. We ended up only creating one of these case studies because there was so much work. But we basically took a, a site designed by a friend of ours who's a developer and wrote this big medium post, like redesigning the whole thing, walking through like every single change that we did. And we originally had this crazy idea to do one of those a week where we were gonna have people submit us websites and we would redesign them and kind of write up what changes we made. That was totally unrealistic since we only ended up doing one of them period. But Steve started doing video versions of that sort of thing too. He, I think he only did like five or six videos total, but even that got him like 30,000 subscribers on YouTube. But we were mm -hmm. sending those out to the, the email list too. Yeah, you did one for the tuple landing page, by the way, which is a yeah, yeah, there you go. Step back in time, our uh, original landing page uh -huh. was redesigned by Steve. Yeah, so we built that up, that list up a lot bigger and that did proportionately better <laughs> as a result you know it sold way more like the craziest thing about refactoring ui i remember and this is like my my second craziest selling things on the internet memory is that we kind of made it live that the night before launch at probably like two in the morning or three in the morning or something when me and steve finally kind of wrapped it up and we've always done these sort of like soft launches where you like put the site live don't email anyone don't tell anyone just so things have like a minute to cool off and some people are probably going to find it and buy it because they're expecting it to be released that day, but it's not going to be like a horde of people. So if there's an issue, hopefully you can catch it before like it's exposed to everyone. But we woke up that morning, like five hours later, maybe at like seven in the morning and checked and we had sold like over $40,000 to just people who had just been like refreshing the page on their own, waiting for it to be released. We never even announced that it was out. Like that was the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, um, totally. So, I, th by the way, uh, episode seventy of this podcast uh -huh. is you and Steve and me and Derek talking about this stuff. Like, like not too long after that yeah, launch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we like we broke it all down, and all the numbers are there, and uh, it's it's super interesting if you want like all the the details mm -hmm. on this particular product. So, I guess getting back to like our original topic here, which is like email list size and how to sort of build that email list. I think I've shared like most of the tips that I can think of for that. But yeah, you definitely want to send like interesting, valuable content. I think it's, I think it can be valuable to send sort of like behind the scenes content too. I think uh, people are, are interested in that stuff, especially for developers. Like I can't remember if I did this or not, but I would have thinking back if I didn't have a good update to send content wise the refactoring the collections book, I wrote like some of my own tooling to like actually create the book. And I totally could have written an email that was like how I used Prince XML and like some other stuff to generate sort of the PDF. And I think people would have found that really interesting. It doesn't just have to be like news about the actual thing. You just have to just give people interesting stuff to read that feels related enough to the, the, the reason that they signed up. And I think people will be super excited about it. Uh, the other thing I did actually was I tried to keep a schedule of sending out an email every single week. And that was helpful in a lot of ways because I knew I had to give something away in every email. So that forced me to make progress on the actual book itself. 
And I didn't want to miss a week because I felt like once I missed one, I wouldn't respect that schedule anymore, you know, and it, it would just kind of throw the whole thing off. So I tried to treat it as like a really real deadline for myself. Like I would be really disappointed in myself if I didn't get that weekly email out and just sort of setting that tone in my head was really helpful for building like some consistency into it. And a big mistake that people make too, right, is they start collecting emails and maybe they collect email, they put up the landing page in the book or course or whatever, it's not done for six months and they don't communicate with their subscribers at all between like the time they put up the landing page and the time that it's finally done. And then you send out that launch email and like it's just a cold list and nobody cares and everyone's sort of forgotten and you haven't done anything to just like keep that energy high the whole time. And I had like a real fear of that on my first book and that sort of set the habits for everything else I did. But I was just really afraid of letting any of that energy sort of fizzle out, which is why I've, I've really tried to make sure I was sending stuff out uh, consistently. I think that's really important. Totally. We've talked about this implicitly, but I think it's worth stressing it explicitly, which is that Twitter for dev products, dev education is like, I think Twitter is like your, your ideal top of funnel place. Like yeah. That's, that's, that's where the is. market is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of your energy should be poured into, into that. Like think of that as like the, where people are finding you initially and the landing page and YouTube and all that are probably places they get to maybe a little bit later. YouTube might be its own top of funnel. I think YouTube is good too. I think if I knew that I was going to be just like a video content guy and you told me I could only have a Twitter account or a YouTube channel, I think I would pick a YouTube channel at this point. But yeah, YouTube is crazy. It's huge. It's like the second biggest search engine in the world, right? And it's great for like every time you post a new video, people get like notified. Like when we post like Tailwind Labs videos, there's like a comment within like one minute of publishing the video of just someone trying to be the first person to comment. So YouTube subscribers is like a good engaged audience too. So I, I definitely would consider that as well uh, on top of Twitter. Mm. One thing that we have brushed over a bit is in my tweet, I said, if you're a good programmer and a great teacher, mm -hmm. and I think that great teacher bit is hard too. Yeah. Like this is part of this. Like if you're just not good at creating educational content, this is not going to work. Like the no, stuff it you're has, producing to, be has good. to be good. Yeah, it has to not only it, it can't just be good. It has to be like world class to me that it doesn't have to be. Like, obviously, there's people out there like making a living without doing like making something the best. I to me, I don't think there's what's the point if you're not trying to make something the best. You know, I, I've had success by just like going harder and deeper into topics than most people are willing to go. Like the testing course that I did, I feel like tried to tackle really hard stuff that most people gloss over. Like every TDD course I'd ever tried to take myself was like, here's how you build a calculator with TDD. We're gonna write like a calculate function that can take two numbers and add them together. Of course that's easy. Like what's hard is how do you automate tests that have to talk to the Stripe API? How do you automate tests that, you know, need to talk to some external service that doesn't offer a sandbox environment or all these like real world hard things. You know, I was just like determined to find answers for these things and teach people how to do them. How else do you build that that teaching skill or the muscle? I guess just doing it a lot. I wish I had better advice on this. I saw a tweet by Paul Graham like a few months ago or something. It was something like something like a great way to find out what you're naturally good at is to pay attention to the things that you're surprised other people are bad at. 
And I read that and I felt like, uh, you know, I, I definitely have always sort of taken for granted that I just assumed every developer could write blog posts, you know, but that's not true at all. And I think some of that was because I like used to like read so much ThoughtBot stuff. It felt like the culture at ThoughtBot was every single person there is a good teacher. I don't know if that's actually feels accurate to you as someone who was in there, because there's probably just a lot of people I just had never heard of who weren't creating content, who who just worked on client projects, you know? Yeah. I'm trying to think of like how, do you, how to teach well. I think empathy is a, a big component and it's not empathy like, oh, I understand your feelings and I can sort of like model your emotions, but more like I can create a pretty accurate model of what is going to work for you. Like what you do understand, what you don't understand, and what is the minimum instruction I can give that gets you to a place of competence. I think a lot of this is honestly what you leave out and what you focus on. Like I think I think a thing that developers I've seen developers fail at this a lot where they get really excited about the nerdy technical details and their content is like too obsessed with that and like they don't really they haven't noticed that like people are not going to follow this. Yeah. How do you teach someone to be better at that though or is that just like yeah. an intuition thing? I mean you're going to get feedback along the way if you're producing these educational things. So I think you have enough taste or enough natural ability here where you kind of could just do it. I bet for most people having a small like brain trust or like small group of people to show drafts of things to would be really really useful if you're if you're if you're new at this and not sure you're already a great teacher. Like when you said like you should write your blog post to a real person. My first thought was like and then send it to them. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and be like where did you fa- like where did you lo- like did this get boring at some point? Did yeah. you lose the plot at that some point? Like what's the least clear thing here? Yeah, that that probably helps. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I had better advice on like how to just be good at teaching but getting feedback seems like an obvious one for sure. Yeah, I think that might help too is like if you're trying to make like a video course you're doing like you're getting async feedback from people. And so it's like, yeah, you made a video and like some people liked it and some people thought it was okay. And like, you're trying to ask people like, where did it go off the rails or what could be better? And like people, I think that's hard to get to like get great feedback on. But if you did a live workshop with four people you work with on your topic and you're like watching them like type on their laptop and like seeing what they're doing and like seeing when they call you over and ask you more questions or like which segments of this just didn't work. I think that's probably a great way to get warmed up. I gave two test-driven Laravel workshops before working on the course. Um, I, I actually totally forgot about that. So, um, nice. Okay. Likely likely was helpful. I think most people get into difficult details too fast, even in a niche, a more advanced topic. I think a lot of the times people don't think like, what are the key things to understand here that I need to make sure people really get? I've seen this happen like when people teach games. Yeah. Where it's like, Someone is still trying to understand the rules and you are telling them about strategy. Yeah. And it's like, shut up about the strategy. Yeah. Like, just don't talk about that. Like, this person is just trying to understand how everything works. <laughs> Get to strategy later. I don't I don't know how to teach this, but there, it is important to just, like, be able to, like, really understand the what the other person understands and doesn't understand. Like, that's 100% the most critical thing. I don't know if you ever have this experience, but I have this experience a lot, like, waiting in line at like Subway or something where I can tell that like the person working there and the person making the order are like 
missing each other on something and like yes. i know exactly yeah, yeah. what this person is asking this other person and they're not understanding it and i'm like all you need to say yep. is this and like it will become crystal clear this person thinks you're asking for this but you're actually asking for this you know yeah um uh, yeah i think it is modeling i think it's building a working model of the person you're trying to instruct mm -hmm. and like and that is a skill that can be learned i think and you kind of need to like check your ability on that and see where you're at and it's worth like developing yeah and testing yeah i think i think like reps are kind of the biggest thing there yeah yeah that's key if you figure out a way to teach people how to do that i would love to i'd love to hear it yeah but i think that yeah that's interesting right i mean rob's book the right useful book talks about this a good bit like what makes good writing and a, and a good book and good teaching material and all that i think that's that's useful it's probably and, one of those things where if you if you're at least aware of it and think really hard about it that's a big yep. improvement over not being aware of it and not thinking hard about it so yep. yeah cool Speaking of, of things you should think hard about, let's talk about pricing. Big one. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with. You are a developer. The error you're almost certainly going to make is to charge too little. Like you probably will not set a price that is too high for your product. You're probably going to make a mistake in the in that that's too low direction. If you feel highly comfortable and confident about the price you've chosen for your product, it's, it's probably too low. too low. It's 100 percent too low. Yeah. Yeah. You should be a bit. You should be terrified. Yeah, yeah like you you were probably i mean i, I remember you telling me like i think it's less to with like refactoring ui because it was so obvious there was so much demand but like i remember just like t talking pricing and packaging with you at various times and it's i feel like you were always have said like yeah i'm just worried if i pick like 129 like zero people will buy this on launch day and i'll have wasted three yeah. months i've always almost always historically by the way raised the price higher than i was planning to like within the last 24 hours before before launching something yeah pricing I think the tricky thing about charging more, depending on what you're making, I've made this point before, but if you're just writing like an ebook, for example, it is hard to charge like $100 for an ebook because the Kindle store is $9 a book or something. You know, books have a going rate. The trick to being able to charge more is try and package it into something more than a book. So even for my first book, there was three tiers. There was like just the book, there was the book plus some screencasts. And then there was the book plus some screencasts plus a whole example code base that was built using a lot of those techniques where you could look through like a whole app. The middle tier, I think, was the one that sold the most copies, but the most expensive tier was the one that brought in the most revenue. And the prices were something like 39, 79 and 135, something like that. So plenty of people were happy to pay like 135 bucks just to get all of it. Like what you're doing for when you do that a lot of the time is actually just giving people who don't care that much a way to give you more money because if you don't they just can't you right know? yeah if someone has the company card and has a training budget that's five thousand a year and they've used none of it and you only sell a 19 dollars ebook they can only give you 19 dollars but if they're like a super fan of yours and they've been following along and they want to support you and they want to like they want adam to be a full-time creator and you have a 149 option on this page, like they would love to choose this. Yes. But they can't, yeah, you have to give them that option. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't think I've ever released a product that had a top tier lower than $100. I think the first one was 135. The second one was like 179 or something. And the view course was like 139. And refactoring UI was 149. Mm -hmm. and yeah so you have to make it worth it like people need to look at the pile of stuff they get for those higher prices and be like oh yeah this this is good 
And ideally, you want to do that sort of anchoring trick where it's kind of like, oh, like this top one is clearly the best deal. It's only $10 or $20 more than the middle tier or the lower tier or something. I'm, I'm getting a bunch for my money. Do that sort of that, that sort of predictably irrational thing. I'll say don't tear down. That's, I think, a mistake that's easy to make. If the main product you think is like worth $149 and the real value is in that thing, don't create like cheaper versions of it that cut things out just to be able to have tiers. The point of tiers is to like increase the amount of money that you can get from people, not to decrease. It's The point isn't just to have tiers. The point is to give people who are willing to spend more a chance to spend more. That doesn't mean like you add stuff that's not valuable, but maybe the value is not quite as proportional, you know, like maybe the just the book package is 85% of the value. And the one that includes all the bonus stuff is twice the price. I think that is okay, because the people who are willing to pay that aren't sensitive to that. And that's definitely me as a customer. If I'm excited about something, I'm going to want to get like the best one, even if like the 8020 rule says get the cheaper package, you know, Right. So. And the thing to keep in mind, especially on launch day, is that like your revenue is basically the number of people on the list times your conversion rate times, times the, the price. price. The price is like the easiest one. That's the only one you control. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the only one you directly control. Yeah. And the it, other two it can are make just a much hu- harder. It's crazy. Like if you just like pull up a calculator and do the math, the difference for you by charging $10 more can be crazy. And it doesn't matter to the person buying it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So do the math. I would. I will say that's that's important. Yeah. Uh, build build a spreadsheet. Yeah. Try some different pricing yeah. models. It's a good excuse to build a spreadsheet, and I'm always looking for excuses to make spreadsheets <laughs> and to agonize over pricing yeah. decisions. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'm trying to think of other pricing related stuff. Okay. So, what do you think about launch discounts? Yeah. I feel like education are sort of like in the initial phases, this is like a hits-based business. You're going to have to keep creating courses and like building up your authority and email lists and all this over time to sort of make this more of a like recurring revenue stream, I think. So I feel like your first few launches are like where you're going to make most of your money. It's not the like residual sales after the launches. And so I don't think you want to discount too much and just say like, oh, well, like I'll make a bunch of money later by like you know, creating a big splash or something. But I do think adding a bit of a launch discount for like is really useful for creating some urgency and like trying to wring a lot of the value out of the list that you have at launch. Yeah, I agree like with It that. gives you more excuses to email people, I right? Agree. Like it's like, hey, the discount's ending. Hey, it's going to end tomorrow. Okay, it's ending like last five hours, something like that, which is like, you know, two or three people will be annoyed at you when you do this, but also like you'll just make way more money. Yeah. Yeah, I have mixed thoughts on it because it's tough because I definitely feel like it works, but I just like don't feel like great about it. On my first book, I did like a 30% launch discount or 20% or something for like the first three days. And the book was selling awesome. Tons of people were buying it. And then as soon as I removed the discount, which I kind of had to do because that's what I said I was going to do, the sales like just stopped. And then I panicked and I was like, oh man, I got to, what am I going to do now? For my other stuff, I did like a launch discount, but didn't announce when it was going to end. And I just kind of waited until it seemed like things were petering off and used that as a chance to say, okay, another email. This is like the last week of the launch discount. Just like really squeeze some more value out of 
it, you know, and then I would get rid of the discount and the product would kind of feel like dead at that point. Not dead, you know, but like it's very front loaded. I feel like if I was going to do it again, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would do this on the very first project, but for the stuff that we release now, you know, like the Tailwind UI stuff and stuff, we don't do discounts at all. We don't do Black Friday sales. We don't do anything. And we're leaving money on the table, I think, but I feel better about it. I, f I feel like it's just simpler. I, I feel like it's not trying as hard. You know, it's not like, I think the urgency is important in terms of like, you made this thing, you want to make money from it. You want to make this into a full-time thing. You know, you need to maybe use some strategies that you even don't feel like super great about necessarily. But I am happy that we're at a point now where I don't feel like the need to do that. I feel like I can just do things the simpler, less, you know, internet marketery way and have things still work. I mean, I try to think about like other industries to think about how much this stuff matters. I, I want to believe that the people who signed up for the list that are opening all the emails that are clicking everything that are super excited don't need to be given a discount to buy it the day that it comes out, you know? It's like when a band releases a new album, maybe in 2003 when a band released a new album and people actually like bought albums at the store. Like I didn't expect there to, it to be discounted, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, that's fair. Or like when a new book comes out, I don't think Atomic Habits was cheaper on, on day one than it is now. It's probably just been the same price the whole time. So this is probably not a make or break decision. I don't think it's a make or break decision. I do think if you feel confident that you have this engaged audience of people that are interested no matter what i would not do it because it's a lot less stressful to not have this when do i get rid of the discount situation am i gonna like kill the whole thing you know are people gonna stop buying it because like it was cheaper and now it's not and they missed out on getting it at the the right time or or whatever so Perfect world, I think, try to set yourself up where that doesn't feel necessary. But I can only say that I have done that. I did do that for like all my educational products, you know, and it worked. I just like, in hindsight, feel kind of like gross about it. So I, I can only say that's the that's the true story is I did it. It worked. I feel ashamed of it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I feel like the classic advice would be like, oh, don't do this. No, like, yeah, I, I did exactly, this, but you should Exactly, I'm trying not to say that because like I yeah. can't tell you what happens if you don't do it. I can only say totally. how I, that I did it and how I feel about having done it, you know? Let's stay on pricing for a second here. I think one thing we haven't talked about is like making it easy for companies to buy your thing in bulk without talking to you. Like easy, like that easy. Yeah, yeah. We have always had like a team license option well, me and then me and Steve on any of the stuff that we did. And definitely a solid chunk of revenue came from that stuff. Like, I, I wonder if I have that in here. Like, refactoring UI team license has done 100 grand total. And then the whole product has done 3 million. So that's not like a huge, huge, huge amount, you know, proportionally. But it's a good chunk of money, you know, either way. Yeah, it's free money because like companies, if you don't do that, companies are just going to buy the individual one and put it in the Dropbox, you know? 
Right. So, so yeah, just give them an easy way to pay you a bunch more and yes, say, put this one in yeah, the Dropbox. Exactly. It's exactly the same as like the tiered thing in a sense. It's just let the people who are happy to do it, do it because it doesn't matter to them and it only benefits you. So I think also particularly for educational products, there is an interest in buying it for the whole team. Yeah. I think so too. Like people want to have a shared vocabulary. Like it's often, it's it's just as easy to say, hey, can we buy this for the whole team of six instead of just for me? Like that, I think that that question is just as likely to get a yes as the other, as like an individual purchase. So like you may as well have it. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Ongoing revenue. I think this is the hard thing about course-based businesses is that they're going to be mostly a bunch of revenue up front at launch and then drop off dramatically yes and that has been my experience like refactoring ui has been the only one that has had a long life i would say of steady revenue and a lot of that was just word of mouth recently we added like a little sidebar ad to the tailwind css documentation that just were refactoring ui is just there permanently we did that maybe two months ago and i think that's basically doubled sales of refactoring ui so it was doing like 25 to 30k a month now it's doing like 50 to 60k a month so that's awesome because there was no distribution for it at all before. I kind of expected that to actually help more. Like when that idea dawned on me, I was like, well, holy crap, this could be this could be a big deal. Obviously, it's still great, but um if you have a massive distribution platform, yeah, you should probably use it to sell your product, but most people probably won't. And yet, refactoring UI was still doing Mm-hmm. kind of like long tail sales so I, I think it might be interesting to talk about what the difference is there likely i was going to say if you if you create the type of educational product that is mostly evergreen you know or that you keep it up to date then i think you can build a good funnel around it again i can't say that i've ever done this my instincts like my way of being is just to move on to the next thing that I'm excited about. So I've always just kind of left things to die in a sense, you know, release it, people who want it, pick it up and I move on to the next thing. And if it keeps selling, it keeps selling. If it doesn't, it doesn't. That's just like how I like to live. It's more, I just, I want to work on things I'm excited about. I, it's not that exciting to me to try and build like a system around keeping like an info product selling forever. I have friends in other industries, like a friend of mine sells courses for audio engineers, and he invested a lot of time and energy into making like three really high-end polished courses where he like rented out studios and flew in like a camera crew and all this stuff. And all his time and energy goes into like fostering systems to keep selling that stuff. And that totally works, you know, for him. So it can definitely be done. I think what you want to do is make it so new people are finding it all the time somehow. So you probably are still doing new content, but maybe it's new free content on your blog. Maybe you're like, you know, Atomic Habits. Is it fair to like compare anything that anyone we're talking to is going to be doing to Atomic Habits? No, but it's sells because people find James Clear's website or because they get recommended the book is probably the bigger one. But, you know, I think there's plenty of examples of like people who are just staying relevant and creating new interesting free content but they have like a paid thing that is this anchor thing that's maybe been there for a couple years that gets updated on an ongoing basis not always just coming out with brand new ideas all the time you know so maybe the blog is the thing that's a little bit more timely talking about like reacting to things that are sort of happening in in 
whatever community like you sort of exist in. Like maybe you have a YouTube channel where you're saying, okay, new version of React just came out with this new feature. I'm gonna like walk you through how it works. But your like evergreen sort of course that sits on your website that sort of keeps making you money is like advanced React application architecture or something. And you update that like every couple of years to make sure that it's current. But your YouTube channel is where it's like a mix of news and cool little ideas you have or whatever to just kind of like stay top of mind and help new people discover you and whatever. But you still have this course that still does well. I think like Wes Boss has his React for Beginners course or whatever that I think is a major asset for him still, like probably close to 10 years after it has first come out now, as long as he like keeps it updated, you know? So I, de I definitely think it can be done. I do think probably most of the revenue still comes on launch day using the strategies that we've we've talked about at least. I know like the mom test book though that Rob Fitzpatrick did, his whole goal was like, I want the launch, I don't want there to be a launch. I wanna make $0 on launch. I wanna purposely run this experiment and design this in a way that it sells more every year than it did the year before. Yep, his, his point there is that the thing that keeps a book selling after launch is whether or not people recommend it to each other. And people recommend books to each other when they solve a problem for them. And so if your course solves a real problem that people have, like really gives someone a superpower, that's the kind of thing that is likely to keep keep going. So I think that's pretty huge. So I think probably there's a lot of word of mouth driving refactoring UI sales still, but also like you have all these marketing assets out in the world, like those tweets that are that are still bouncing around, like those epic blog posts, like the YouTube channel with the read, like the teardowns, like there's all this stuff out there. There's all mm -hmm. these places people might find this thing and bump into yeah. it and eventually become a customer. Yep, I agree. Like just having things sprinkled around the internet that people find for sure. Like we had this really post high like quality things. five practical tips for cheating at design, I think was the blog post. And it was like the number one blog post of all time on Medium for a long time, which is pretty mental, you know? So stuff like yes. that. Yeah. So if you can helps. write the number one medium blog post on your topic, uh, you should, you'll probably make a lot of money on your course. And just to, so make sure to be able to do just that. Just like a side note, that sounds like eye rolly, but it's not as actually that hard to do like the best take on anything. Like there's less competition than you think. Right. If it's within a niche, it's yeah, exactly. And that doesn't mean it doesn't have to be good, but like if, if you spend like twice as much time on something as like the next person, like that's basically all, all it takes. Yes, it's like hard, but it's not like unachievable. It's very achievable to do like the best bit of content on any specific thing, you know? Mm -hmm. You've at least got a, a chance. If your thing is just like how to learn Ruby on Rails, that's or like how to learn programming or how to learn Ruby, like brutally hard. But if you're like hard, I bet, yeah, there's not something out there that you are going to look at it and read and be like, oh, I never could ever make something this good. Just because there's a lot of them out there, it doesn't mean that like the bar for the best is still high, you know? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it could be. But like, it's going to be easier within a niche there. Like if I wanted to write the best guide on like Rails migrations, I think I have 10x the chances of like making like the world's best mm -hmm. version of this. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. But that should be the goal, I think, is make the world's best X for any content that you're working on and and just realize that that's like more achievable than it sounds. Yeah, I like that. That's the target. Yeah. Like, fine, miss it, but go for it. Yeah. 
Like otherwise, you know, we're all gonna die. Yeah, I Why think like time making a thing that you know is not great. I wonder who else does this. Like Julian does really great content like this. You know, you can tell that's his whole strategy. Is I'm not gonna write a blog post on something unless I think it's the best blog post in the world on that thing. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah, if you go JulianGuy.com, and his are pretty generic. Like generic's the wrong word, but his are pr- not very niche. You know, <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's, it's worth checking out his stuff, julian.com. Like, just like read his like writing well handbook. Like, this person has invested a hundred times what the average person invests into an article on something. Yes, it ends up with just kind of incredible asset. You know who else like has been really successful and done this sort of thing too is um, like Josh Como, who did, he did this like CSS for JavaScript developers course that came out like last year or the year before that did extraordinarily well, like better than my stuff has done. He's obviously an incredible teacher, but if you read any of his blog posts, the amount of effort that he puts into every single one is like absolutely extraordinary. Like he'll do a blog post on like CSS easing curves and he'll create widgets that he can embed in the blog post that are interactive that kind of show you how all like the easing curves work and think about visual ways to teach these things with sliders to like slow down the transitions and all sorts of stuff like that. Just like goes way further than anyone else is like willing to go to communicate something well and clearly and make it click for people that's paid off big time for him. Like, I think I gave him a testimonial for the website, uh, CSS for JS devs. What is like the, uh, let's see the testimonial that I gave him was like, what I love about the way Josh teaches is that he'll do whatever it takes to make sure a concept is clearly understood and that you're building an accurate and helpful mental model. Josh will literally invent new tools from scratch if it will help a concept stick, even if it's 10 times more work for him. And that's like what you have to do if you want to make something that stands out. It's hard, but it's not unachievable. You know, you just have to like set that bar and be willing to do that. It's almost a waste of time to not do that, I guess, is my opinion. Like, you either spend five times longer than everybody else is spending or don't do it at all. Because if you don't do that, it's just going to get lost in the mix of what everyone else is doing. And you would have been better off not doing it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And and I think that five times longer effort probably results in like a hundred times better yes. results. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like results in terms of the content of the thing, but just like results in terms of like how it performs for you, for building your audience, for helping the the product that you're trying to eventually create out of it a hundred percent it it sounds like it's a lot of work but it's actually like proportionally a small investment compared to the actual payoff mm. right yeah the, the, the returns are in the like later stages of the effort it, that's interesting right it's like it's actually like it's past the point of like rapidly growing returns you know right instead exactly. of diminishing the opposite returns. of diminishing yes, returns exactly yeah i love that yeah uh-huh. It's like your returns curve goes up. Can we turn that into going. a book? You know, I feel like that Ooh. could be like a book or a thought leadery Twitter thread. Totally. I'm going to spend a few weeks on that yeah, uh, Twitter sounds thread. Sounds good. <laughs> that's great. That's a good That's Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. I'm sure there's other stuff we could go into here. You talked about like the ongoing remedy thing. Like You have this point here about subscriptions versus like one-time sales that is a, a big topic i think and i've never done a subscription so i can't speak to it fully i think the only thing i can say is like i've been working with my friend sam to help him put together the buildui.com which is his new like pro training site for ui development stuff and they're doing it as a subscription model so i've been talking about that stuff a lot with him and a lot of the reason that like 
they're doing it that way and that I've told him to do it that way based on like the calls and stuff that we've done and conversations we've had about it is it just is a better fit for him and his personality like he is a I want to make one video and get that dopamine hit every single time type of person like he wants to be he'd prefer to sort of be on that treadmill with like doing like a four-month big commitment project really doesn't work for him you know whereas it works for other people for him it's like i I need to do something that i can ship in a week and i just want to do that over Mm. and over and over and over and over and over again i like this like product founder fit here. yeah Uh uh-huh it's like like, there are a bunch of ways to build a business yeah and doing one that's going to like help you stick to it yeah i i had a point about that for like how to market your stuff too in terms of like should you do blog posts should you do screencasts should you do live streams should you do conference talks I don't think it matters that much. I think you do the things that are the most fun for you, where your enthusiasm is going to come through the most and where you're more likely to do it. Because if you're like swimming upstream, that's the thing that's going to kill it. You want to do the things that are are easy. For me, I loved doing live streams. So I would do live streams all the time. And that worked really well for me because I just found them really, really fun. So I wanted to do them whether I was getting value from it or not. It's the same for like posting things on Twitter. I loved posting little tips and things I learned on Twitter just for the fun of posting them. And because like you get kind of that dopamine hit from like the feedback and stuff, which I enjoyed too. Some people are just not Twitter people. You know, we've kind of said we think Twitter is probably important for the developer market, which I I think is, is true. But of course, this is going to be easier on you if you just like doing that anyways. If you like putting things out into the world, that it's going to be easier than if it's like totally goes against your nature, you know? Yeah. And, and people like people's, you said this before, but like your excitement is contagious. A hundred percent. Like it's just more fun to like consume something that someone is excited to create mm-hmm. and like put their heart into. Yeah. And so even if Twitter were the best thing, if you hate Twitter, like that's not, that's not going to be for you. And like, you'll always be kind of faking that excitement. Yeah. Whereas if you're just like, I love giving talks, like people are going to respond to that energy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a big topic, man. I uh, I feel like we just, there's still more we could talk about here, but I feel like this is a monster episode already. So uh, that's all right. Maybe we can do another one sometime. Sure. Yeah. I think I think we've given people enough of a starter. I blueprint. think so. Yeah. Yeah. You have some blog posts too that have a little more detail. Like you talked about your first book launch. That one is probably the most interesting one for people who are interested in this topic. I would think. And I also did a microconf talk. Uh, called like nailing your first info product launch that uh is that you didn't post that oh, you that's, did, on YouTube. that's on youtube it's right? on like the microconf youtube channel so okay yeah i would i would check those out for sure there's probably some more details that we haven't covered there that would be useful but i think this is i think that's a pretty good start i think we've given people their best their best shot based on what what we know at least yeah i think so L- like let us know if this when and if this works for you yeah if anybody goes from a cold start to a million dollars a year in three to five years, please tell me and I will tell everyone I told you so. Yeah, I uh, I think I told, told you about this before and I hesitated whether to say it publicly, but I have this like dream to one day create like a new Twitter account with like a totally fake name and fake avatar and just like see if I can like make a $50,000 info product in six months from zero with like a totally new identity. Of course you can do that. <laughs> I have no I doubt. I want to do it that. just to prove it though. You know what I mean? Just to Sure. I mean, 
It would make a great documentary, yeah. like document the whole thing, yeah. you know, like yeah, a hundred percent. That's like the real output from the whole thing is like taking off the mask at the end of the day and being able to say totally and yes. not leveraging like any of my existing stuff, not using like any of my other Twitter accounts to like help elevate it or anything. That, just no, you can definitely do that because you're you. Like that, the reason you you have existing assets is because of who you are. Maybe like that wasn't like an I don't, accident. I don't know though. What maybe? I, yes, I like to think so, but there's. There's a lot of conversation out on Twitter these days about like the role of luck in things and how everything is luck. Like this person got lucky, this person got, and I did get lucky in a lot of ways. Like I don't think any of my stuff would have been as successful as it was if I didn't become friends with Taylor Alwell, for example. And we just kind of became friends and he helped promote my test room and Laravel stuff and you know, whatever. Yeah. You're, but you're not really testing this hypothesis because you already know all these things. Like you, like, yes, you're, you would like be going without the audience, but like you have all this under your belt. I think if what you like, I almost think you need to like train someone else to do this. Like what you're doing with Sam. Yeah. I guess what I want to do is like prove that there's no, that it doesn't require luck. I, I want to prove to myself that like, okay. I could succeed on merit, you know, <laughs> uh, you, but you did succeed on merit. Like, uh, yes. You had lucky breaks, yes, but like, for sure. Not really like, but, uh, I, I agree. Dude, you'd be, yeah. I, I mean, you know what? I feel like I like, you know, my friend, Jonathan, who actually works with me at Tailwind labs now did a course on like eloquent performance patterns or something. Eloquent is like the Laravel version of active record. And I sort of mentored and coached him through the creation of that course. And it did, better than my first three courses did you know so i don't know i do feel like uh i have good ideas on this stuff and that it does work and that it's not just like oh it can only work for the specific person like there's a real i wouldn't quite call it a recipe but like it's not uh a lottery i think if you're going to create an anonymous twitter i would rather have you like tweet spicy takes as opposed to create an info product oh that's scary but would be fun (laughs) (laughs) yeah just, just be careful with your opposite. Yeah, exactly. I need to learn how to use Tor. Um, <laughs> Only tweet through yeah. Tor. Everybody, go follow me on Tor. Yeah. Twitter. Uh, all right. Terrible. Twitter. All right. All right. Cool. Uh, good talking. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all your your secrets, which is mostly on. just make sure you can be the best in the world at something, and then people will pay you money. Yeah, that really is what it comes down to for me. I, I just <laughs> think it's more achievable than you think. I think. Aim for being the best in the world. You know what is a good read on this topic is Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That, that is great. Yeah. Yeah. Read, read, write useful books. Read Perennial Seller. Badass. Go read Adam's podcast. Or, yeah, yeah, read Badass and uh, go read Adam's blog post and watch his microcom talk and like try not to make at least 50 grand on your first time. <laughs> I think you will. Awesome. All right. Thanks, man. All right. See you later.